Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I hope that you'll take home the order of worship. Um, I want to make sure that you understand that from the very beginning, the time of preparation all the way through the call to worship, invocation, asking the Lord to be with us, uh, our songs of praise that lead us to acknowledge our sin, and then that sin being absolved because of the blood of Jesus, resulting in another song of praise, after which we give our offerings and our tithes back to the Lord, reminding ourselves and proclaiming to God that everything that we have belongs to Him. And now we come before Him to be fed by Him, to be fed by His Word. These songs are a way in which we join our voices. John Calvin would say it was one of the ways that the people were most faithful theologically. And I want to point out a line that might have snuck in on you. Lord, I believe is the song that it comes out of on page four. And in the third verse, it simply says, teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. If you know what it's like to have unanswered prayer, you know how much we need that patience. Come with me and let's pray. Father, we know no other way to describe you than as you have described yourself steadfast. Father, you have covenanted with your people, your church, throughout the age since you gathered and assembled them at Mount Sinai, since you, Lord Jesus, rose from the dead and made yourself known to hundreds and hundreds, and as you have been faithful to send the Holy Spirit to witness to your church ever since then to the fact that, Father, you are steadfast. Your love your covenant love toward us keeps us. 
Father, we don't know anyone who functions like you. And yet we confess that sometimes we have a hard time drawing near. Father, I praise you that you are transcendent. That you live in the high and the holy places. You are like no other and there is no one who exists on your plane of existence. But you have also said that you live among the ones who are broken and contrite of heart. Father, we sing often of those who are sin sick. That you know the woes and the pains of our lives. And you have said that you are present. Father, you have said that you speak into our lives and that you remind us of the truth. And we praise you today that you remind us of your truth through this book of Jonah. Father, we praise you that you are God and we praise you that you are faithful beyond measure. And we ask you, make yourself faithful to us now, we pray. In Christ, your name we pray. Amen. I'm reminded of Nathan Shung when he came home from the hospital. Every time I would open my voice, my mouth up here, he would start to cry and scream. Do you remember that? Um, let's hope that's not the case for the future little ones who are on their way. We have been looking at this book of Jonah and we have said from the very beginning that in the book of Jonah, we're confronted with God's character. And in turn, our own characters are revealed. And we come to the end of Jonah, the part of Jonah that causes us the most trouble. Because in many ways, you might think of Jonah as, oh yeah, that prophet that was swallowed by a fish and then went and proclaimed to Nineveh. But you miss the whole force of Jonah if we don't sit in this fourth chapter. We're going to have one more Sunday next week to look at it, but the main theme that I want you to see this week is simply this, that only when God's mercy is his prerogative will we be in awe of his character. Let me say it one more time. Only when God's mercy is his prerogative will we be in awe of his character. We study the Old Testament every fall as we ask the question, who is the God of Scripture? Not the God of the Old Testament versus the God of New Testament, but the God of Scripture who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is the same from the beginning to the end. And this book of Jonah has been fantastic for us in that regard. I want you to see three things from this sermon today. I want you to see one, Jonah's predicament, Two, God's pursuit. And three, God's prerogative. All right? If you want an outline, it's on page 14 of those orders of worship that you have. You can jot down some notes if you want to. But my hope is, is that you'll listen. And that as we see God, as he reveals himself in these words, that we will be changed, both of us, you and me. So the first thing I want you to see is Jonah's predicament. All right? And this comes from verses 5 and 6 of what we just read. But we're going to look at them again. Sometimes I like to do little math equations. I like to think of myself as a philosopher. Um, I've gone to some of their conversations and I'm usually lost within the first two minutes. Especially when philosophers and economists start using letters and numbers to describe uh, proofs. 
But I want you to know that if I could give you a mathematical statement for Jonah's predicament, it would be this. That self-pity plus, self-pity plus self-protection equals hardness of heart toward others. That's Jonah's predicament. And I want you to see it. Listen, verse 5 says this. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now you know what's happened already. Jonah was sent back to Nineveh after he had been spat out by the whale and he went to Nineveh and obeyed God and actually preached against Nineveh. It said that he did it from the very first day that he was there and when he saw after 40 days that God didn't judge Nineveh, he got angry. If you want to read more about his anger, read chapter 4, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's right in front of you. But what we see now is that Jonah, after he had gotten angry with God and said, I'm so angry that I could die, and God looks at him and he says, do you do right? Do you act faithfully, Jonah, in your anger? Jonah doesn't respond to God. We left last week with the silence of that question resonating in our hearts. And now we pick up Jonah in his self-pity. This is what I want you to see. One commentator actually said of the entire book of Jonah that he titled his book, his, commentating, his, common, his, common, his commentary, excuse me, on Jonah, he titled it this, Doest thou do well to be angry? Question mark. A study in self-pity <laughs> was the second phrase. It was pretty great. And if you wonder why, look at what Jonah's doing. Jonah has already said, look, God, if this is what you're going to do, if you're going to have mercy on my enemies, then I want nothing to do with it. He says, I'd rather die. Now, that in and of itself would give you reason to believe that Jonah is acting out of self-pity. I would rather die than to see these people who have repented not get what they deserve in his mind. Jonah has left the city. He's gone alone. He was by himself, the text says, outside the city with God's question still ringing in his ear. And you've got to see the irony of this, right? Right? The irony is that his preaching was successful. His preaching was successful. Imagine if I had the opportunity to preach to a group of people and suddenly the entirety of that group of people repented and turned away from all of the evil that they had been doing. This is just amazing, right? But Jonah is not amazed. Jonah is angry. Jonah is filled with self-pity. But Jonah's self-pity is joined with his self-protection. And I want you to see this. This is what it says. He said that he sat, he said that there east of the city he made a booth for himself and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah left the city and went out into the wilderness and he decided that he would protect himself by building a booth. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you go, booths, booths, where have we seen those before? Oh, yeah, there's a whole thing called the Festival of Booths. That's what this is about. You remember the Festival of the Booths was when God's people, the Israelites, celebrated God's faithfulness to them as they traveled through the desert for 40 years. And how God met them at every turn. How his love was steadfast. That word that we've been using throughout the whole sermon. And here we see this booth in the life of a Jewish prophet being a symbol of God's faithfulness 
God's covenant faithfulness. Almost as if Jonah is saying, are you on my side, God, or on theirs? It's even possible that Jonah, in so doing, is asking God, are you going to be faithful? Jonah, by himself, in his self-pity, plus this self-protection, equals the hardness of his heart. You see the irony that Jonah didn't stay and celebrate with those who had repented, but rather the irony of not celebrating. In the New Testament, we're told that every time a sinner repents, the angels in heaven celebrate. They rejoice. We're told by Peter that the angels look over the rim of heaven and they go, can these people not believe that the God of the universe loves them this way? But here we see the hardness of Jonah's heart out in the wilderness by himself. And there we read in verse 6 that God appoints a plant. Listen to how Jonah experiences it. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. This plant came up literally overnight. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. Jonah knew that this was a miraculous gift that God appointed. Jonah had been swallowed by a fish that God had appointed. So you see the idea, God is again doing a miraculous event. And it's quite possible that Jonah thought, look, God is for me now. He's given me this plant so I can sit here and watch and see. Maybe even after all, Nineveh will be destroyed. But notice what the writer of Jonah says here. It's fascinating. He says that God gave him this plant to be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, the interesting thing is, if you follow your notes, you realize that as we have seen throughout the book of Jonah, discomfort and disaster is the same word as evil that is often used. This double meaning that God sent the plant to save Jonah from his evil. And what was most evil to Jonah most recently? Chapter 4, verse 1. It was evil to Jonah, an exceedingly great evil, that God had had mercy on them. So what is Jonah expecting from this plant? Is he expecting that God is with him? Is he still waiting for the destruction of Nineveh? Is God going to come alongside me? Jonah responds, and it says again that he rejoiced with a great joy. He rejoiced with a great rejoicing. He was exceedingly glad, as your passage says. But you have heard already more than Jonah has yet experienced. How is God going to break the mathematical equation of Jonah that says self-pity plus self-protection equals hardness of heart. Well, that's the second thing that we see is God's pursuit. And so I want you to look at this with me, if you will, starting in verse 7. I want you to see that God's righteous anger, the core of which is against sin and is for beauty, pursues Jonah. That's what I want you to see. Verse 7 says this, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm 
If you're keeping track of things that God has appointed, he's appointed a storm, he's appointed a fish, he's appointed a plant, he now appoints a worm. And as he appointed this worm, it says in verse 7, he appointed the worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And verse 8 says, when the sun rose, God appointed his last appointment, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God's righteous anger, the core of which is against sin and is for beauty, is now in pursuit. And actually, you have been paying attention from the beginning of Jonah that since Jonah got on a boat and ran from Tarshish, has been pursuing Jonah from the beginning. This is a parable in the making. God is appointing a plant in verse 7 and a, and a worm in, in or a plant in verse 6 and a worm in verse 7. And now in verse 8, a scorching east wind. Now see, you and I wouldn't necessarily pick up on what this scorching east wind is. But if you study this idea of a scorching east wind, it is the wind of the Lord, as another prophet has said. Hosea, in chapter 13, he calls the east wind the wind of the Lord. It's the desert winds that would blow up and that were set for destruction. In Psalm 48... It says of this east wind that it shatters the ships of Tarshish. Do you want to know that it's the same east wind that parted the Red Sea in Exodus 14? It said that it blew all night long so that the sea parted, so that the Israelites could walk across on dry land, and then the, the wind stopped so that the seas would cascade down on the heads of the Egyptians, the enemies of God's people. Psalm 78 tells us that it was this same east wind, this wind of the Lord that blew the quail into the tribe or, or into the, the camp of the Israelites when they complained against God and said, see, you have brought us out here to kill us. And God, we are told in his anger at their complaining, sent them meat that rained from heaven quail from the sky by an east wind. And then, as you might remember, there was a, a, huge, uh, a huge plague that followed the giving of that quail. But what we see is that this east wind came upon Jonah. Now, I promise the prophet Jonah would not have missed this. The one who authors Jonah actually said something of that east wind that's interesting. He says that it was a scorching east wind in verse 8. This idea of scorching is hard to get around because it's the only time that word is used in all of Scripture. But it comes from the root of another word that tends to describe those who are the best at engraving or the best craftsmen, those who are the best at carving and so this idea of a scorching east wind is a wind that does precisely what it is set for. 
This isn't just a hot wind. When Mita and I lived in Texas, I'll never forget, we had moved down over a Thanksgiving. Mita came down that Thanksgiving week, and as she stepped out on that Thursday morning of Thanksgiving, she looked back at me and she said, I feel like I've just stepped out into a hairdryer. The winds were just blowing so hard in the hill country. But this wasn't a random blowing wind. This was the exacting, engraving, carving, plowing up wind of the Lord, the scorching east wind. This wind blew with purpose and intent and exactness. I had a pastor in my past who uh, gave Mita and, and me counseling. We needed counseling many times in our marriage, but this was one of the times that we needed it. And as we went to him, he said, look, I, I can get to the bottom of this. I can tell you what's wrong with you, but I'm not good enough. I could tell you, but I would kill you in the process. So you got to go talk to somebody else, right? This is the opposite of that. This is surgical precision. In fact, one has described the anger of God as a surgical weapon designed to destroy ugliness and restore beauty. That the anger of God tears down self-sufficiency and compels us to take him, God, to take him into account. How do we know that this is what this scorching east wind was? Because of the impact that it had on Jonah. Look in verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The reality is that Jonah was wasting away there underneath the scorching east wind of the Lord. This fainting is also described by Isaiah as those who are underneath the wrath of God, also described as fainting in Amos 8, those who are also under the wrath of God. And what we see in Jonah is actually not prayer, but the lack of prayer. If you compare what he does to what he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, it says there that he prayed to the Lord and said, but here it just says that Jonah said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah wished for death, and he was getting it. He was getting it. But then we hear again God's pursuing question. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah's reaction was exactly what you have heard before. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. In the preparation quote for this Sunday's sermon, I gave you the quote by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, and he essentially says this. He says that how we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. And here in Jonah's state, his state of great vulnerability, we see the true colors of Jonah's heart. Yes, it would be better for me to die than to live. But the last thing that I want you to see is God's prerogative. God's prerogative. Because that's the point of Jonah. Everything has been building to these two verses. And that's why we've got to come back to it again next week. But I want you to see this week, I want you to see God's prerogative both to pity 
and to protect. Listen to verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God's prerogative, both to pity and to protect. We have seen Jonah's situation. We have seen Jonah's predicament, rather. We have seen God's pursuit. But now everything has been built to this, God's prerogative. You see, the Lord has created with the plant and the worm and a scorching east wind, a lesser to greater than argument. A rabbinical, a Jewish argument that would have been recognized by any Jew studying this. You know it by the words of Jesus, right? When he talks about prayer and he says, how much, he says, your fathers who are evil, if your fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to you when you ask for them, how much more You get it? A a, a lesser to a greater. How much more your heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit when you ask for it? You can read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus does it over and over and over. And here the Lord does that very same thing. And he compares Jonah's pity with his pity. This idea that God says, you pity the plant. Now to pity the plant is to long to spare the plant, to look upon it with compassion, to be troubled by it, to be troubled by the condition of the plant. As one author who studied this word said, that the idea is one of an action that is executed with tears in the eyes. A desire to spare that's executed with tears in the eyes. And God says, Jonah... You didn't plant the plant. You didn't labor over it. You didn't cause it to grow. In fact, you had no control over it whatsoever. It was here today and gone tomorrow. But you are more troubled over your comfort from this plant than you are over 120,000 lost people who are rightfully judged by me, the lost. And God says, compare that to my pity. And one author said that we should read verse 11 not as, and should not I pity, but with a more forceful tone, and may not I pity? Are you telling me that I cannot pity them? Are you Jonah, who got on a boat and fled to Tarshish so that there would be no one to speak the truth in Nineveh? Are you Jonah, who now in your anger is refusing to celebrate As this city repents, are you telling me that I may not have pity? Execute an action of sparing these people with tears in my eyes? God describes the people of Nineveh again as a great city. This idea of not knowing their right from the left, some people have thought that's because they were infants. But but probably the stronger image 
in Hebrew literature is the idea that they were morally incapable of making a choice because sin had so crushed their abilities. And God said, not just them, but all of creation, over which God has proven time and time again that he's in control. And he says, are you telling me that I may not have pity? One writer says this, the most significant, he says that most significant is the fact that a deep and a profound understanding of God's amazing pity toward those who are obviously sinners might actually move us toward mercy. Gazing upon that which defines the very glory of God and that we are transformed by that glory. It is God's prerogative to show pity and it's also God's prerogative to protect, right? He protected the Ninevites from his wrath. He withheld his wrath from the Ninevites. He protected at least those people on that day, right? You, you have to be able to admit that. From the very beginning of Jonah, what has he done but protected Jonah, right? The storm that stopped the ship from Jonah being able to flee from him. The whale that saved Jonah from death. The plant that caused Jonah to understand his own pity the worm to destroy the plant that God might have action toward Jonah. And then finally, this scorching east wind, the wind of the Lord, the exactness of his anger because God was protecting Jonah. God is saying to Jonah, there is nothing in the created order that will protect you. I alone will protect you. And you see, this was not supposed to be news for Jonah. Listen to how Psalm 121 reads, a psalm that surely Jonah would have known. It says this, I lift up my eyes from the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He will keep you. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps, you, who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And listen, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from evil. The Lord is the Savior, not the plant. God has said to Jonah, I am the covenant keeper. We see this same pity and this same protection in Jesus, don't we? as we see in both Matthew and in Luke, as Jesus looks over Jerusalem and longs that Jerusalem would turn toward him for protection and even weeps in Luke 19, weeps over Jerusalem. And ultimately, God's ultimate protection of us, when he pours out his wrath on Jesus at the cross, I'll never forget the first time that I figured out that you could start a fire with a magnifying glass in the sun. I remember being a kid and holding that magnifying glass out and watching as this leaf burst into flame and as then we built this big fire. And I want you to know that the ultimate protection that God has given is that he trained 
His wrath completely and wholly on the cross. He poured it out against Jesus so that his wrath would never be poured out against those of us who have put our faith and trust in him. God's ultimate protection. As one writer says, what is most inconceivable is that the focus of God's rage against sin is not directed against us, but against himself, against the person of Jesus. Isaiah 53 says it was God's pleasure. It pleased God to crush Christ for us. The last thing that I wanted you to see, Jonah's predicament, God's pursuit, God's prerogative, and finally, ours to ponder. What do you do with this? This book ends in a question. And one of the women who I read this week actually wrote this. She said, it is primarily the reader on whom God's final words land. The reader who is left to ponder their meaning. The reader who must decide what action to take. This is one of only two books of the entire Bible that end in a question. And they end in the question for you and for me, is it God's prerogative to act in your life? Is it his prerogative, period, full stop, his? And that's why the book of Jonah is so arresting. I want to ask you a few questions. Do you struggle with self-pity? Are you more concerned over comfort than you are over those who do not know the love of Jesus? Are you more concerned over comfort than those who don't know the love of Jesus? Whether those who are in your tight circle for who you need to just be loving or those who have never known the love of Christ. Are you exhausted from self-protection this idea that no one else is going to protect me, so I must protect myself. I've been reading the Proverbs, and there's one in Proverbs 18 that you should hear. It says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, meaning the place that he runs to for protection, right? And then the, it goes on and it says this, Like a high wall, this city is like a high wall for him. But then it ends in this crushing way, in his imagination. There is no self-protection in wealth. Do you struggle with a hardness of heart toward others? Is the phrase for Jonah good for you and me as well? That self-pity plus self-protection equals hardness of heart. Jonah teaches us that our one way of understanding our heart is through this window of anger. You see, we often tell each other, don't be angry. But that's not what the Bible says. Psalm 4 says, be angry. <laughs> it says you ought to be angry. Don't sin in your anger. But the scriptures teach us to wait when we're angry. To ponder our anger is what Psalm 4 says. 
and to ask ourselves when we're angry, what do we most desire right now at this minute? Remember, reactions are often a better thermometer of our heart than actions. And when we are angry, what do we most desire at that minute? Is it to cover up our vulnerability and and to hate our loss of control in that moment? Or is it an anger motivated by a hatred of sin and a love of beauty? In your anger, are you able to stop and look at your own sin? As Jesus said, before you go and take a speck out of somebody else's eye, what about the log that's in yours, right? Finally, do you ponder who God is? What he has done? Are you struck with the awe of his anger that was trained on his son so that you and I would never have to know it? Well, it's not just our anger, but Jonah also asks us to consider where do you sense God's anger at work in you? Stop for a minute. Ask this question. Where do you sense that God's anger might be at work within you? His surgical anger, his precise anger, his purposeful anger that hates sin but loves beauty, that in his kindness is trained on us to move us toward repentance. Finally today, I want you to remember who God is. Isaiah 49 has some interesting parallels with what we've just read. Isaiah 49 talks about the end of days when God will restore his people And he says, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. And listen to how he describes his help. He says, they will not hunger or thirst. And then listen, in the context of what you've just heard in Jonah, neither will scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. But maybe you feel like those who spoke in Isaiah because verse 14 says this, but Zion said, no, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And in the last picture that I wanna leave with you, this is what God says. Again, a question. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls, your protection is always before me, God says. What I want you to hear, church, is that God has not forgotten you. Even when his precise anger is trained toward you. This summer we found ourselves in Arches National Park. And we went 
and visited Delicate Arch. I don't know if any of you have been there before, but you go way back in the park, and then you have to hike a mile and a half through this scorching east wind. I don't know if it's an east wind. It's a wind that's blowing around out there, and it's so hot it nearly kills you. And we got out there, and all of a sudden you see this glorious arch called a Delicate Arch. And you imagine over the years and the centuries and the millennia and, and, and the multitude of years how the wind has blown sand particle after sand particle against that rock and creating this delicate arch through which the wind now whistles. And I want you to see that God's work in your life, carving out the hardness of your heart, is not only more delicate and more precise than that, but is so that he might be glorified through you. To believe it, we have to see what he's already done, which is give his son. So we turn now to the supper. Pray with me.